Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and you're listening to Words on Film on WBCALP Boston. I will be reviewing some of the newest movies out right now. For this show, I have four new movies to review for you. Three of them are brand new, i.e. they were released during the week of September 25th through 30th, 2022, and I'm reviewing them for you right now. The other one was released the week before, the week of September 18th through September 25th, 2022. But I'm going to start with some of the newest films. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Smile. This is the latest film that actually is the feature film debut of director Parker Finn. And it also boasts some very impressive acting talent in addition to having a pretty scary premise, although a somewhat familiar storyline when it comes to uh, horror movies. But after witnessing a bizarre traumatic event involving a patient, Dr. Rose Cotter, who is a psychiatrist who's played in this movie by Sosie Bacon, starts experiencing frightening occurrences that she can't explain, although you can see what she's experiencing. Rose must confront her troubling past in order to survive and escape her horrifying new reality. And I said previously that Dr. Rose Carter is played by Sosie Bacon. If you're wondering if Sosie Bacon is related to Kevin Bacon, she is actually Kevin Bacon and Kira Sedgwick's daughter. And she, I think, grounds the movie very well. And in fact, I loved uh, the first part of this movie. I thought it had some really good jump scares, especially when you're introduced to this paranormal entity that introduces itself to its victims by smiling, basically. And it also kind of passes on its curse to other people after it's done away with its current victim. And the first victim is the one you've probably seen in the previews as well as on the posters. And I don't watch movie previews, so I... Uh, avoided them at all. I, I avoid previews at all costs, any and all. Uh, but I, I do have to say something about the the. I, after I saw the movie, I then saw the preview because it was one of those things where I could have gone on YouTube anytime, looked up the smile trailer, and I really, really wanted to do that. But I avoided it at all costs because I've been very curious about this film. After all. Smiles can be creepy, especially not so much the smile itself, but the look in somebody's eyes when they're smiling. That really makes all the difference. And I think there were some parts in this movie where the smile from this paranormal entity was indeed creepy, especially with the first victim in this movie, who whose name is Laura Weaver and who's played by Caitlin Stacy. Again, not a household name, but she is immortalized in the posters for this film, and her smile is indeed kind of creepy, but that's probably about as creepy as this movie gets when it comes to the paranormal entities actually smiling. But the movie does have its share of really good jump scares during the first third of the movie. I think it was the last two-thirds where... 
it kind of fell apart for me because I felt like there were various horror movie tropes, especially when you have a very smart protagonist like the doctor in this movie, Rose Cotter, who has seen a lot of other patients and also has experienced some traumatic moments in her life. The storyline where she is at first haunted by this paranormal entity and then she starts to research where this entity came from, its other victims, and so on and so forth. I felt like I've seen that in other movies, and I was especially reminded of the story arc of The Ring. And I think it it had a few too many similarities to The Ring, in addition to the fact that the movie fell apart for me when there were characters in this movie who were supposed to be smart, but ended up really making very stupid decisions. For example, there's the part where there's a patient that kills herself in front of Sosie Bacon's character, and she starts to experience the haunting of this paranormal entity that smiles creepily at her. And the entity starts to visit her at her home when she's getting a glass of wine, but she's in her kitchen and the lights are off, And she sees this creepy person smiling at her in her kitchen. And she doesn't think to herself, maybe, just maybe, I should turn the lights on. And also, the paranormal entity, once it starts to embody some of these other people that are haunting the main character, doesn't really seem to do very much that's creepy once you see that smile. It starts to move very slowly, and the things that it says are not particularly scary. Plus, there there were other moments where you see other characters smiling sort of off-screen or out of focus, and I think it would have been more effectively creepy for those characters to remain out of focus and for the main character here not to visit them, but sure enough, she turns around, I think, a little too soon and comes back to to see them and wonder what the smiling is. I think it would have been more effective if you had just seen that other person smiling and and the main character would have just walked away. But smile, I think, gets some things right, but overall, I thought that the slow pace and also the letdown of the paranormal entity and as to what it could actually do besides its smile, really brought this film down a few notches. But for a first-time director, it is effectively scary, I think, in in some of the right scenes, which is why I give Smile my rating of a marginal checkout. And I think that the director, who's directing you know a feature film for the first time, Parker Finn, knows how to make certain jump scares legitimately scary, but I think the movie should have been far less predictable, especially when it came to the climax or the anti-climax. And also, I was not buying the love story here between the doctor, Rose Cotter, and also the police officer, Joel, who's played by Kyle Gallner. And I think there was some unforgivable tokenism that involved another member of the love triangle here that I think this movie tried to pass off as a legitimate love story, but it didn't really work out very well. But there was probably more about Smile that worked than what didn't, but Smile still gets my rating of a checkout because I think during the parts where it should have been scary, it was effectively scary. 
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Bros, which this is the latest film starring Billy Eichner and directed by Nicholas Stoller. And Nicholas Stoller, as a director, has worked several times with Judd Apatow, and this movie is certainly no exception. Nicholas Stoller's debut as a director was 2008's Forgetting Sarah Marshall, which was an excellent film. Uh, It's certainly a a great film for a first-time director. And he's followed that up with such comedies as Get Him to the Greek, The Five-Year Engagement, Neighbors, Neighbors 2, and that's actually it for... Oh, there was an animated film that he directed called Storks, But since Storks, Bros is actually his first feature uh, film that he has directed. But the movie is definitely Billy Eichner's. And Billy Eichner not only stars in the film, but he also produced it and co-wrote it with Nicholas Stoller. Billy Eichner has, on the talk show circuit, certainly promoted this film as the first gay romantic comedy It actually really isn't. It's the fourth LGBT romantic comedy by a major legacy studio and the second to have an openly LGBT principal cast after the movie Fire Island. And Fire Island is a movie that was released on Hulu back in June, but I didn't actually see that. But what Fire Island has in common with Bros, besides it being... Uh, the second major studio film to have an openly LGBT principal cast is both of those films actually feature Bowen Yang in supporting performances. And Bowen Yang is not only the first openly gay man to be a uh, cast member of Saturday Night Live, but he also is the first Asian American to be a cast member on SNL. But he has chosen his films uh, very wisely so far. And he's given third billing in this film, which isn't, I, I think, too deserved because he only has a couple appearances here and there, but he's funny in his appearances. But the, main, the movie largely focuses on Bobby, who's played by Billy Eichner, who is 40 years old, living in New York City, and doing pretty well for himself. He hosts a podcast that gets... Uh, at least a million followers and having a podcast like mine, which gets maybe tens of followers. That's something I can certainly look up to. But in addition to that, Billy, uh, excuse me, Bobby, Billy Eichner's character is also unlucky in love. First of all. And secondly, he works for an, a, an LGBTQ museum that is opening up in New York city and is, um, one of a kind, or at least um, right now it is. And he also, his luck with romance begins to change when he meets another gay man by the name of Aaron, who's played by Luke McFarlane. And Luke McFarlane's character is nothing like Billy Eichner's character. He is athletic. He's more easily, uh, or undisputedly good looking. And he's also what's known as a bro. He's a guy who grew up in a small town, played hockey and is not quite as, shall we say, and I'm choosing my words very carefully here, flamboyant as 
uh, Billy Eichner is. And I have the feeling that considering that Billy Eichner co- uh, stars in this film and also co-wrote the screenplay that this movie is very or semi autobiographical. And it certainly seems to stem a lot from, or take a lot from Billy Eichner's uh, stand-up comedy or from what little I've seen of it. But I did enjoy the story arc between Bobby and Aaron. Of course, I'm not gay, but very much like movies I've seen involving gay characters like Brokeback Mountain or Moonlight, but not so much like Call Me By Your Name, which I think is a very overrated movie. I could definitely feel for Billy Eichner and his character, especially dating someone that's maybe out of your league and some of the relationship problems that comes with being self-conscious. I think that's some something to which anybody can actually relate. But from an LGBTQ uh, standpoint, or maybe more like a, a character standpoint, there are a lot of LGBT characters here. I probably wouldn't say there are many Q characters here, i.e. ones that are questioning their sexuality or their their gender with which they're born. But I actually found that there were a lot of LGBT characters here that were very well-developed despite not having as much screen time here. But on top of that... It's also a very funny movie. I mean, Billy Eichner himself is not only very hilarious, but he's also very relatable. And the movie made the most out of its cameos as well. I won't tell you all the cameos because a lot of the biggest cameos are at the very end of the film. And those are actually very surprising, not to mention very funny. But there is a great cameo here by Deborah Messing, who plays herself. And there's a part where Bobby, Billy Eichner's character, is unloading his relationship problems onto uh, Deborah Messing, and largely because of the role that Deborah Messing played on uh, Will and Grace, uh, both the original show from the late 90s and early aughts, as well as the update from a couple of years ago. And the way that Deborah Messing... uh, reacts to uh, Billy Eichner unloading his relationship problems on her was, I don't know if it's exactly true to who Deborah Messing actually is, but it was very funny. And I think that Deborah Messing, for what little screen time she had, played this part very well. So Bros is not a comedy for everyone. I wouldn't say it exactly alienates uh, straight people. I'm straight, and I found it to be very funny as well as very touching in a lot of scenes. And it does follow the certain arc that you would expect romantic comedies to follow, but I thought it did it very well and with a lot of charm, which is why I give bros my rating of a knockout. I think that Billy Eichner certainly made this film semi-autobiographical, but he also made it very real and very poignant. And the chemistry that he has with Luke McFarlane is very believable. And the falling out that they have, while it is somewhat predictable based on the story arc of romantic comedies, it also felt very real. But the resolution of that falling out a little later, whether or not 
Bobby and Aaron get together later on in the film. I won't reveal for you right now, but I did think it was believable, and I certainly recommend Bros as probably one of the better romantic comedies, not one of the better gay romantic comedies necessarily, but whether you're gay or straight, this movie does work as a romantic comedy, and I bought into it pretty well. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Monsters. This is a film that was released on Blu-ray and DVD, not to mention digital, and available to stream on Netflix on September 22nd, 2022. It came out right um, at the right before Halloween, or at least right a, a reasonable amount of time before Halloween. So I think that a lot of people who are looking for a good Halloween movie will probably be able to find this very well. It is directed by written by and co-produced by uh, Rob Zombie. And I believe that uh, Rob Zombie wrote the screenplay himself and it is based on characters uh, developed by, uh, Norm Liebman and Ed Haas, who created the original show from the 1960s. And why did it take so long for, for the Munsters movie to get uh, released? Well, I'm sure that the Munsters had been in development since the Addams Family movie came out in 1991. And considering that that movie was a pretty big hit, it seemed like a no-brainer to release the Munsters, but... I don't know why it took so long, I guess with development hell and with contractual obligations the way they were, I, I guess some things take longer than others, but the monsters never really went away. It's been rebooted several times. There have been TV movies that have been made, some of which featured the original cast, some of which haven't, but since the principal adult actors in the uh, original 1960s uh, TV show like Fred Gwynn and Al Lewis have since passed on. I, I think that um, I don't know where I was going with that sentence, but I'm just going to continue. But anyway, the monsters in, in this Rob Zombie film is more like a prequel to the TV series than it is, I would say, maybe a movie. But it felt, I think for that reason, a little bit more like a pilot to an upcoming TV series than it did feel like a legitimate movie. And I think that may, may have made the movie suffer a little bit, but it does follow the family of monsters who moves from Transylvania to an American suburb, famously on Mockingbird Lane. However, if you have seen the show, you probably know that the monsters have a son named Eddie, and they also have a cousin who's a bit more normal, but lives with them anyway and doesn't exactly see the difference between her adopted family and the people who live in the suburbs along with them. But both Eddie and that cousin are not in this film. Instead, it tells you about how Herman Munster 
came to be as a Frankenstein-like monster, and also how he and his wife, Lily, who in this movie is played by Sherry Moon Zombie, Rob Zombie's wife and frequent star of his films, how they met, how they married, and how Lily's father, the Count, who's played on the TV show by Al Lewis, and in this movie is played by Daniel Roebuck, how the Count feels about uh, his new son-in-law, Herman. And I think the movie is kind of fun to watch. It's obvious that the principal actors, Jeff Daniel Phillips, who, like Sherry Moon Zombie, has been in several other Rob Zombie-directed movies, he plays Herman Munster here, and it's, it's kind of odd because... He doesn't play him exactly like Fred Gwynn with the vocal inflections and all. In fact, I felt like he was doing more of a Jeff Goldblum imitation. But at the same time, as much as I loved Fred Gwynn and his take on Herman Munster, I did actually appreciate how Jeff Daniel Phillips did a different sort of interpretation of Herman Munster. I liked Sherry Moon Zombie as Lily. It was obvious that she was having fun as well. And Daniel Roebuck, again, like Jeff Daniel Phillips, was not doing an exact imitation of Al Lewis, but he still brought an original sort of personality to the Count or Herman Munster's father-in-law and Lily Munster's father, which I could appreciate. But I also really didn't like some of the dialogue that that came with this movie it was it was a lot of bad puns which i guess are okay for kids after all this movie is rated pg but i think older audiences especially fans of the original show whether they watched it when it was brand new or watched reruns on nick at night are probably going to roll their eyes at some of these puns but I thought they were a little bit too much. Some of them were funny, but I think probably about two-thirds of the lines didn't exactly work. And it's worth it to note that not only is this Rob Zombie's first film that kids could watch, because all the other films that Rob Zombie directed are rated a very hard R with a lot of blood and gore and guts, but it is also his first straight-up comedy. And there are other films he's directed like House of a Thousand Corpses or All American Rejects that ha- have had funny characters, but this is the first film that he's directed that's been a straight-up comedy with, yeah, a lot of monsters and some creepy Halloween effects, but not really anything that would send uh, give kids nightmares, at least I don't think, or at least uh, kids maybe above the age of six, but... I think that Rob Zombie could have benefited by having maybe somebody else with some more um, comedic experience collaborate with him on the script. But at the same time, Rob Zombie does have an affection and an affinity for Halloween paraphernalia as well as shows like The Munsters. After all, when Rob Zombie left white zombie and had one of the few successful rock and roll solo careers his very first song that came out which was a excuse the pun monster hit was dragula and dragula for those who really know the monsters is the name of the vehicle that 
Herman Munster drives. And that is actually not in this movie, or at least it's not referred to as Dragula from what I remember. But The Munsters is not a perfect film, but it is kind of fun, and it makes for, I think, maybe some good Halloween viewing and might actually go on later to be a cult classic of a film. Uh, or at least one that's shown at midnight showings because it was a lot of fun. Some of the gags and the the puns were kind of eye-rolling. And the story, I think, rather than building up to how Herman and Lily Munster met and fell in love and got married, I would have liked to have seen how the family itself formed. Maybe that will be in a si- in a sequel, but this Rob Zombie version of the Munsters gets my rating of a high strikeout. And the reason I'm not giving it a checkout is because I felt like the puns were way too numerous. I felt like the length of the film was way too long. Some of, I think two thirds of the gags really didn't work. And I really wanted to see the whole Munster family get together. But as I said, maybe I'll see that in a sequel, but I think that there are some people who will enjoy the Munsters. I just thought that if Rob Zombie had written the movie with, somebody else, maybe somebody with more comedic sensibilities, and maybe given the story a little bit more focus, it would have eked its way into a checkout or maybe even a knockout in my book. But as it stands, the monsters could have been a lot better. There were some things to write home about for this film, but overall, it just missed the mark just marginally. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is one that I meant to review last week, but I hadn't actually seen all of it. And it's not technically a movie. It's more like a limited miniseries. But it was fascinating. It's a 10 part series. And by the time I was uh, reviewing my or doing my show last week, I had watched probably the first six parts of it, but I have a rule. I have to see the entirety of the film before I come here and review it for you. Now, the mini series is a biographical crime drama limited series called Dahmer monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story. And it is, as you might imagine, about serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer. 
I think it could have just been called Dahmer and it would have been okay. And I think calling it Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story, seems a little bit too much like one of those low-quality made-for-TV movies that would have come out in the 80s or 90s. Plus, we already have a great serial killer movie that's called Monster, and that was about Eileen Vornos, and that was the movie that won Charlize Theron her only Academy Award, but it was a well-deserved Academy Award win. But I'm going to call the movie Dahmer just to keep it short. And this is not the first movie or dramatized series about Jeffrey Dahmer. For instance, there was a movie that came out in 2002, which was called Dahmer, and was probably the reason that this miniseries could not contractually be called Dahmer. But that movie, which I actually haven't seen, starred Jeremy Renner, as Jeffrey Dahmer, after he had been acting for a few years, but before he became um, an A-lister, particularly when he was in the Avengers as Hawkeye. But before that, he was in that uh, movie, and I haven't seen all of it. I've seen parts of it. But I also have seen a movie that came out in 2017 called My Friend Dahmer, which was based on a graphic novel written by Dirk Backderf, or excuse me, Durf Backderf, which is the real name of, um, or rather the pen name of John Backdurf, who actually attended the same high school as Jeffrey Dahmer and semi-befriended him. Although I think they were more acquaintances than friends, but even still, My Friend Dahmer I thought was an excellent film and one that was overlooked when it came out. It doesn't have any murders in it, but this miniseries, Dahmer, um, is certainly one that encompasses not only Jeffrey Dahmer's life, but also the effect he had on everyone that knew him, not just his victims, but also the families of his victims, his next door neighbors who could literally smell the decaying bodies that Jeffrey Dahmer kept in his apartment and also his parents and his stepmother as well. Jeffrey Dahmer is played in this movie by Evan Peters, and there have been some people who have critiqued Evan Peters for being too good-looking to play Jeffrey Dahmer, but I think that's kind of bogus, first of all, because Jeffrey Dahmer was actually a pretty good-looking guy, but even more than that, I think that very much like Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer was able to get away with the grisly murders that he did for as long as he did because of his charm. And I think that Evan Peters plays him very well in his charming phase and also his very sick, twisted, and demented phase as well. But even greater in this miniseries is Richard Jenkins, who plays Jeffrey Dahmer's father, Lionel Dahmer, as well as Penelope Ann Miller, who plays his, um, or Jeffrey Dahmer's mother. And Jeffrey Dahmer's mother and father had a very complicated relationship that ultimately ended in them getting divorced. And Richard Jenkins, I think, plays Lionel Dahmer very well in the sense that there's nothing inherently wrong with Lionel Dahmer, psychologically, I don't think. But he does experience a lot of trauma when he realizes what his son has been doing and he th- there's a lot of finger pointing as to who's to blame for how Jeffrey Dahmer 
came to be the serial killer that he ultimately was. He did have some sick and twisted, or shall we say, unorthodox interests when he was a child, as this miniseries demonstrates. But it's, as you watch this film, you kind of wonder how his Jeffrey Dahmer's interests made him who he ultimately became, the demented serial killer that he became. There could have been some way that his interests as a child could have developed into something positive where Jeffrey Dahmer could have conceivably found the cure for cancer, I guess. But I, I the movie doesn't exactly answer that question, but it does delve into the psychology of his family and also the undoubted um, trauma or the conflict that they had considering how they could have steered Jeffrey Dahmer's life into a more positive direction and what what they did when they were raising him to ultimately make him the monster he ultimately became. But in addition to Jeffrey Dahmer's family trauma, this movie or this miniseries did what I think a lot of other movies about serial killers don't do, and that is make the victims more human or more developed as characters in the greater sense of the story where you actually really feel not only for them, but also their families when they meet their ultimate fate. And there's one particular episode that focuses on one of Jeffrey Dahmer's victims who was uh, deaf and gay. And once you learn about his ambitions as, as well as his relationship with his family, it makes his ultimate death under Jeffrey Dahmer all the more heartbreaking. But even more heartbreaking is his family's reactions to his death as well as their keeping hope alive that he's still that that he's still okay when we all know what ultimately happened. But another great supporting performance in this movie is by Niecy Nash who is who's been on several TV shows including Reno 911 but in this movie she plays not one of Jeffrey Dahmer's victims but one of his neighbors her name is Glenda Cleveland who from what i'm told is not a composite character but she actually smells Jeffrey Dahmer's um apartment from her apartment based on the um the the stench that's coming from the vent but she also hears noises coming from Jeffrey Dahmer's apartment that are undoubtedly unsettling. But what's even more unsettling is the fact that she called the police several times. And there's one reenactment of a 911 call that she made that was actually verbatim what happened. So it's not so much as scary what Jeffrey Dahmer's doing to his victims as much as the reaction from the Milwaukee police when Glenda Cleveland actually called them to complain about the noises and the stench that was coming from Jeffrey Dahmer's apartment. So this movie encompasses a lot, but it's not just about Jeffrey Dahmer's life. It's also about his victims and also the people who knew him either intimately or not so intimately, and the consequences of knowing Jeffrey Dahmer, even if somebody wasn't an actual victim of his. 
It is very scary. It is very unsettling. And I think that the movie has the right kind of tone throughout uh, the film. And just about everyone in this film acts really well, especially Evan Peters, but also Richard Jenkins and Niecy Nash, in addition to other supporting performances by the likes of Molly Ringwald, Penelope Ann Miller, Karen Molina White, and also Michael Learned, amongst other people. So I don't, this movie doesn't, or rather this miniseries doesn't have the qualifications to make it on my end of year top 10 list because it's more considered a made for TV miniseries. It's rated TVMA and for very good reason. But if this were in a theater, I would watch it from beginning to end, even though all 10 parts add up to about nine and a half hours. But it just goes to show you what Roger Ebert said. No great movie is ever long enough and no bad movie is ever short enough, which is why this Dahmer miniseries, the full name of it being Dahmer Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story gets my rating of a knockout. It is very well acted. It's very unsettling, but I think it does what a lot of other serial killer movies, not to mention miniseries, does wrong in the sense that it doesn't glorify what the serial killer does in this film. It makes it all the more horrifying, and it also adds a human face to many of the victims, including the one person who was able to get away from Jeffrey Dahmer, and thank God he did, because Jeffrey Dahmer was indeed a monster. And he, his life could have been channeled into something more positive, but this movie actually gives you a hint as to what made Jeffrey Dahmer ultimately who he became. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters and on streaming for the week of October 2nd through October 7th, 2022. And I'm going to start with the movies that are likely to be released in theaters. And I'm going to go past the ones that are uh, released on. Yeah, there, there are a bunch of them on the site that I'm looking at that are subject to being released on October 1st, October 2nd, October 3rd, and so on and so forth. But I'm going to shoot for Friday, October 7th. And one of the biggest films to be subject to be released in theaters is a movie that's called Amsterdam. And this is a movie that has an all-star cast. It is directed by David O. Russell, who's directed several big movies over the last few decades. Among them are American Hustle, Silver Linings Playbook, and The Fighter, amongst other 
such movies. He's utilized Christian Bale in several of these films and actually directed Christian Bale in his Academy Award winning performance in The Fighter, which was a a deserved win for Christian Bale. And Amsterdam stars Christian Bale. And it's actually a movie that takes place in the 1930s where three friends who are played by Christian Bale, Margot Robbie, and John David Washington witness a murder are framed for it, and uncover one of the most outrageous plots in American history. I don't know if this movie is based on a true story, because um, David O. Russell not only directs it, he also wrote the story and the screenplay himself. It could have been based on uh, something real, but I don't exactly know. And I can't exactly tell you what the characters are like until I actually see the movie for myself. So that'll be a while. But as I said, the movie stars... Christian Bale, Margot Robbie, and John David Washington, in addition to Anya Taylor-Joy, Alessandro Nivola, Chris Rock, Mike Myers, Michael Shannon, Taylor Swift, Timmy Oliphant, Zoe Saldana, Rami Malek, Robert De Niro, and several others. And those are just the big names in this film. So Amsterdam is a movie I definitely will see, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on Friday, October 7th is a movie that's called Lyle Lyle Crocodile. And this is a movie that is actually based on the book series by Bernard Weber. And it is about a crocodile that lives in New York City. Does the crocodile talk and wear clothing? According to what I've seen of the film... He does. Um, So he's anthropomorphic in that sense. But the movie, in in terms of human actors, stars Javier Bardem and Constance Wu. And it is directed by uh, two people, actually, Josh Gordon and Will Speck. And I believe this is the first film that they've directed together that's been... that was a a children's film, because... They had previously directed such feature films as The Switch and Office Christmas Party, the latter of which I thought was an excellent film. And actually, The Office Christmas Party in that movie was actually a lot of fun, so it was a good time. I don't know if that movie is considered a Christmas classic, but I enjoyed it. So Lyle Lyle Crocodile is a movie that I will see, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on October 7th is a movie that's called Bromates. And this is a film that has uh, two best friends who break up with their girlfriends at the same time and subsequently decide to move in with each other. Sounds a bit like a sitcom plot, but the movie stars Josh Brainer and Lil Rel Howery. Josh Brainer I'm not familiar with, Lil Rel Howery I am. And there don't seem to be very many other people in this film who I know, or at least I, I actually know some of these actors as I go down the roster of um, acting talent here. There's Ken Davidian, who was who co-starred with Sasha Baron Cohen in Borat. He was the heavy set man, um, and there was a great scene where. He was uh, wrestling naked with Borat, and that was just one of the funniest scenes of all time. There's also Taron Manning from Orange is the New Black, Marla Gibbs from The Jeffersons, and Rob Riggle from Saturday Night Live, as well as several other movies. 
I don't know if Bromates is a movie that I'm going to necessarily see. I don't know if it's going to be playing in a theater near me, but I'll look out for it. And if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another film that is subject to being released in theaters on October 7th is a movie that's called Signs of Love. This is a drama romance about a young man struggling for a good life who meets a deaf girl from a well-off nearby family, and he suddenly sees hope for love and a better life, but only if he can escape the predicament of the streets and the influence of his older sister. The movie stars Rosanna Arquette, uh, Dylan Penn, Hopper Penn, who I presume are related, and several other actors I don't exactly know. It sounds a bit like a melodrama, and it actually doesn't have too many people in the cast, but it is directed and written by Clarence Fuller. And this movie I might see. If I do, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on October 7th is a movie that's called Stay the Night. This is a movie about a failed work opportunity that prompts chronically single Grace to pursue a one-night stand with a stranger. It turns out he's an on-the-outs professional athlete in town with a problem of his own. Maybe they can help each other. This actually sounds less predictable than the movie I just uh, gave you the synopsis of. But Grace in this movie is played by Andrea Bang, and the man with whom, he has, uh, with whom she has a one-night stand is played by Joe Scarpolino. And other than that, there are several actors in here, but none that I know of. I actually kind of hope that this film comes out in a theater near me. If it does, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. And the final movie that is subject to being released in theaters on October 7th is a documentary that's called Battleground. And this is a movie about three women who lead the charge in their single-minded quest to overturn Roe v. Wade as they face down forces equally determined to safeguard women's access to safe and legal abortions. So, I don't know if these three women succeeded in overturning Roe v. Wade, but Roe v. Wade was overturned. I'm not exactly sure if this movie is on these women's sides or if uh, they hold a non-judgmental viewpoint. But either way, abortion is still a very hot topic, especially considering that the United States Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade months ago, something that I did not think they were actually going to do. But they did it. It didn't make abortion illegal all over the country, but it did make abortion illegal in several states including in Tennessee. And it's it's going to be a fight that people on both sides are going to keep fighting for the next couple of decades. I'm not saying that um, the Roe v. Wade will be over-overturned or reinstated in a couple of decades from now. I hope it does in a few years, just putting my personal opinion there. But Battleground is certainly a very timely movie. I don't know if it's going to be playing in a theater near me, but if it does, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've given you all the movies that are subject to being released in theaters, um, now it's time for me to get into my next segment of what's coming up next, which is where I give you the movies that are subject to being released in th- on streaming for the week of October 2nd through October 7th, 2022. On Netflix, there's a movie that's called Jexy that's going to be released on the platform. It's not a Netflix original, and it came out on October 11th, 2019. I actually saw this movie when Words on Film was on hiatus, and I didn't review it for you, but if I did, I would have given the movie a flunk out because it's a movie about a guy whose only friend is Siri, but he gets a new cell phone whose AI helper, who's like Siri or Alexa, her name is Jexy. Now, there are women out there in this world who are named Siri, and there are others who are named Alexa. There, I would be willing to bet that there is no woman out there whose name is Jexy. But the movie stars Adam Devine, who I usually find very funny, and also the voice of Jexy is Rose Byrne. And there's also supporting performances by the likes of Alexandra Shipp, Michael Pena, and Wanda Sykes, who are usually very uh, good. But yeah, Jexy is just a bad comedy. But if you want to check it out for yourself, it's on Netflix on Monday, October 3rd, or starting Monday, October 3rd. On Wednesday, October 5th, there are a handful of originals that are going to be appearing on Netflix. There's one movie that's called Togo, which I'm told is a Netflix original, but interestingly enough, it was made in 2019, and it's uh, also, (laughs) interestingly enough, maybe I'm looking at the wrong movie, but the movie that I found that's named Togo is a Disney Plus original, interestingly enough, even though the website I'm looking at said that it's a Netflix original, but it's the story of a sled dog by the name of Togo, T-O-G-O, who led the 1925 Serum Run despite being considered too small and weak to lead such an intense race. So I don't know if this Togo movie is the same movie that stars Willem Dafoe and Julianne Nicholson, but I'll see it. And I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. There's another movie that is subject to being released on on Netflix that is a Netflix original. And it's called Mr. Harrigan's Phone. This movie is a certified Netflix original that will be premiering on Netflix on October 5th and is a Netflix original. And it's about a man by the name of Mr. Harrigan who dies, but it's also about the teen who befriended and did odd jobs for him and puts his smartphone in his pocket before burial. And when the lonely youth leaves his dead friend a message, he is shocked to get a return text. So this is a movie that is considered a horror film. Of course, if a dead man texted me, I'd just chuck the phone as quickly as I could. But it's apparently based on a uh, short story by Stephen King. So Mr. Harrigan's Phone sounds like a movie that's perfect for Halloween, although it would be creepy enough for just about any time of year. Not uh, one of those fun Halloween movies, but I'll see it and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show, or I'll give it my best shot in terms of seeing it. On Friday, October 7th, there are a handful of Netflix original films that are going to be premiering. One of them is a movie that's called Luckiest Girl Alive, 
which already sounds very interesting. The movie stars Mila Kunis, although it doesn't look like from the poster that she is the luckiest girl alive, nor does it look like from the genres this movie takes that that she is the luckiest girl alive. It is a drama mystery thriller, which doesn't sound particularly lucky to me. But it's about a woman in New York who seems to have things under control and is faced with a trauma that makes her life unravel. So I haven't seen Mila Kunis in a movie for quite some time, but I will see this film, and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And the other movie that is subject to being released as a Netflix original on October 7th is a movie that's called The Redeem Team, which already sounds like a very um, interesting film. Although this film, The Redeem Team, is a documentary, and it follows the story of the 2008 U.S. Olympic men's basketball team and how the quote-unquote Redeem Team set a new standard for American basketball. Now, I don't know very much about the 2008 U.S. Olympic basketball team, but I do know that in 2004, the U.S. basketball team earned bronze, which is sort of a low point for the U.S. basketball team, especially considering that they had professional athletes playing for them like Kobe Bryant. But I guess the 2008 team was more of a comeback for um, the USA. And the movie features, uh, in archive footage, Kobe Bryant, as well as LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, and Mike Krasowski, amongst other people, I'm sure. I don't know if I'm going to see this film, but if I do, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. That just about does it for this episode of Words on Film. Words on Film is the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures, and I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at WBCA or the station as a whole. Until I watch a whole bunch of brand new movies, this is Dan Burke saying I'll see you at the movies.